Welcome to today's episode of the Migration and Diaspora podcast, a podcast about all things migration, with me, your host, Loxanne Harley. Today, I'm joined by Paul Cluett to discuss the fascinating topic of strategic communications and behavioral-based migration interventions. Paul is an independent consultant specializing in research, evaluation, and operations in fragile states. After developing a passion for migration at the Migration Policy Institute in Brussels, he spent several years at CIFAR, an international social enterprise, where he supported the development of its migration, modern slavery and justice programming globally. Years of research in Afghanistan, Ethiopia and Nigeria have convinced him that behavioural-based interventions have yet to realise their potential for protecting would-be irregular migrants. In today's interview, we discuss Paul's work in Western North Africa and the Middle East, where he has worked on communications campaigns that look at how migrants make their decisions and how those decisions can be influenced or better informed to affect outcomes on irregular migration and modern slavery. We also touch on some of the ethics surrounding these types of interventions, which appear to have become popular in the wake of the so-called European migration crisis. It really is a thought-provoking and important debate. I find Paul to be a highly switched-on and very intellectual person. As you'll hear in our interview, he's able to talk about a sometimes controversial subject while conveying the necessary nuance and candour. He's also able to draw from his diverse experiences working across different organisations and geographies, as well as his own experience as a migrant, who now splits his time between his London and Mumbai bases. The only criticism I have of Paul is about his choice of football team, as he unfortunately supports West Ham Football Club. Well, nobody is perfect. Thank you very much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Paul, welcome to the show. How are you Hello. doing, and where are you calling in from? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm in a, a hot, humid and sticky Mumbai, uh, but I can't complain because the AC is working. Um, so I'm happy with that. <laughs> good to I also understand you've done a bit of traveling lately. I was wondering if you could just briefly outline what travel you've done, because I think everyone listening to this and myself as well, we're thinking, you know, coronavirus, how can you be traveling? How does that, how is that even possible? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I, I tend to split my time between, uh, between Mumbai and London, um, which of course became very difficult with, uh, with COVID. Uh, but I headed back to London in, in July for a few weeks and then uh, eventually managed to find a way to get to Kabul for, for one project. Spent a couple of weeks there. So I'd say in the last uh, 10 weeks or so, about 40% of the time has been in quarantine, but uh, very grateful to have been able to see through that project in any case. Um, I also understand that you are a West Ham fan and <laughs> foot football is a running theme on this podcast. And well, I'm not going to give you too much um, stick for that. But, <laughs> you know, la last season, I think it was uh, my team Tottenham in our new manager, Jose Mourinho's first game in charge. It was against West Ham, I believe. And that proved to be a turning point to our season. So I want to th want to thank you for that, I guess. Well, you know, I, I started a career to help people and uh, I'm only glad if my team could do that too. <laughs> good, good. Uh, all right. And so as I often do on this podcast as well, I'd like to ask you about your own migration story. As I know you've been around a bit, both in terms of the countries you've lived in and also the organizations that you've worked for. 
So give us a snapshot of your career and your own migration experience to date. Sure. I mean, without um, giving you too exhaustive a description, it's probably worth saying that I was born outside of the UK uh, and then grew up in what migration scholars would call a super diverse uh, corner of London. Um, so migration was always on my mind in, in some shape or form. Uh, and then when I, when, I left, when I left university and I thought I'd really like to tackle one of those small global challenges like poverty or inequality, um, I, I was trying to think of a way to really develop the skills that would allow me to do that and to approach it at it from an angle which was a bit more um, unique than a generic international development approach. Um, so I, I ended up doing a migration studies master's and then started my career with an internship uh, under DFID's Migrating Out of Poverty program in Singapore. Then was really lucky enough after shooting off a lot of applications that summer um, to end up with uh, the Migration Policy Institute in Brussels. And, and a lot of my migration training was under Liz Collett, who, who was then bossing migration policy analysis and still is now in, in Geneva. Uh, I spent a couple of years there, um, really as the European migration crisis took hold. Um, and so my original idea that I would use my knowledge of migration to help tackle poverty and inequality became much more as a case of being trained in European asylum policy. Um, but after a couple of years of that, I got itchy feet. Uh, and really wanted to see um, asylum issues from the outside, from outside of Europe. So I'd like to say that this was a really noble case of wanting to understand beneficiaries, but a lot of it was about being attracted by new and shiny things. And I think that's been a constant theme in my career. Uh, so there was this new and shiny organization called, called CIFAR, led by Jacob Townsend. And I joined CIFAR and spent the bulk of my career at CIFAR working in origin countries, trying to understand uh, migration decision-making. And that's led me to where I am now, really. It really seems like you've got a really good grounding in different aspects of migration, and also that you really lived and spent time in a diverse array of geographies too. Mm. You know? And as you've said, both in the destination countries and in migrant origin countries, I think migrating out of poverty also has a strong kind of south-south dimension as well so yeah. i think you've got the kind of um, a very interesting profile and today we're talking mainly about your work on strategic communications so i was wondering yeah. if you could just introduce to us what do we mean by strategic communications and how does it relate to migration well that's a really important question i think to start at the back end of that um i think within migration migration programming humanitarian programming, understanding of strategic communications is, is really limited. And that's partly because it's such a broad concept. Strategic communications really is uh, about using communications or media to push some sort of agenda. And if you think of the, the broad array of actors that have agendas to push, uh, you can see how broad strategic communications can be. So we have it in the military, we have it in private companies, um, and then we have it in international development and uh, humanitarian um, sector organizations. Um, within these sectors, strategic communications uh, is better known for the most part by communications for developments or social and behavior change communications uh, methodologies. And the most established programs tend to be in public health. 
So to take a really recent example with COVID-19, uh, strategic communications programs were seeking to get people to behave in a way that kept them safer from, uh, from COVID, for example. And then going back decades, you have campaigns that were trying to encourage people to wash their hands more or use indoor toilets instead of, um, instead of streams outside, for example. Um, in migration, it's much younger uh, as a discipline. And because of that, uh, the kind of projects you see uh, tend to be a little bit less sophisticated for the most part, um, and so a little less clear in their objectives, less clear cuts uh, what a lot of these migration strategic communications campaigns are trying to achieve. Um, and so we have this whole range from risk awareness at one end to much more complex and sophisticated campaigns trying to achieve something very specific around migration protection or um, migration behavior more broadly. I guess, uh, I mean, a lot of questions really on that. I'm sure all of this will become a lot more apparent as we talk about some of the specific pieces of work that you've been involved in. But yeah. who should be interested in strategic communications? How can communication strategies and programs be used to further migration-related objectives? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it's, it's easy to be skeptical of strategic communications and migration because it's easy to think that the whole point of communications and migration is to stop irregular migration. But actually, um, we know or, that that's or worse, not... Or worse indeed, to stop legitimate migration, you know, uh, let's say, yes, asylum seekers. Right. And that's a really good point. I use irregular migration as a very broad term um, to include uh, those people who have a prima facie case for uh, refugee status all the way up to people who um, are very much uh, economic migrants, but nonetheless uh, have, have a right to protection and improving their lives. Um, when we're talking about irregular migration um, and affecting irregular migration flows, the place I start is um, you have two choices. You can either respond to people arriving in usually uh, Western countries, um, or you can try and intervene uh, much further upstream and try and understand uh, why people are making the decisions they are uh, to migrate. And just like you touched on there, you have very, very diverse profiles of people taking the decision uh, to embark on dangerous, uh, irregular journeys and towards Europe. Um, and in some cases, for at least a segment of the population that's deciding to do this, uh, better informed and better coached decisions would lead them to make alternative decisions that may see them migrate irregularly anyway, but in a safer way, or may, may see them make alternative choices other than migrating irregularly. And that can be, uh, that can be really uncomfortable if, like me, you come from a, a, a left-leaning liberal perspective and you come from a European perspective, because it's a very short step from that to saying that to playing into the hands of, of some people who would seek to stop the flows completely. That's a very interesting point. And I'm keen to better understand what all that means in practice. So perhaps it's helpful to talk through a few of the projects that you've worked on. So I understand you've worked on a project to help the European Union to understand mixed migration and strategic communications in the Sahel subregion of West Africa. 
And so first of all, could you give listeners a very brief overview of the general mixed migration issues in that subregion? And for those who are not so familiar with that region, the Sahel is really that kind of belt just below the Sahara Desert. So just set the context there and then talk us through that relationship between strategic communications and migration with respect to those mixed migration flows. Sure. And if you don't mind, I might flip that because I think um, to understand how we ended up doing this, this research project, it's helpful to go back to 2015 and the, and the Valletta Summit where the EU Trust Fund for Migration was born. And from late 2015 until now, the EU started spending a colossal amount of money on um, root cause programming. And within that, uh, so those are those are interventions to address the root causes of people deciding to migrate to Europe. Yes, absolutely. And the EU moved at lightning speed compared to uh, its usual pace in starting to spend this money. Uh, but that meant that it didn't have so much of an evidence forming phase. Uh, and so was commissioning programs that didn't have a lot of uh, data to inform them. And so you fast forward a few years and the EU is starting to catch up with its programming and starting to commission more and more research uh, so that it can commission programs and implement projects that do actually respond to the evidence and the data. And so we ended up with this, uh, with this formative research project for strategic communications in the Sahel. And the reason why the EU picked this region to really uh, focus on at this point was partly the partly to do with the migration dynamics. So since the onset of the migration crisis in 2015 and way before that, in fact, uh, there are very established uh, irregular migration routes um, and regular migration routes between West Africa and Europe. Um, and for a lot of European policymakers, this seemed much more amenable to the kind of preventative uh, intervention that I was talking about, i.e. it's not Syria where it's uh, extremely ethically dubious to intervene with a communications campaign and also for the most part, um, more clear cuts why people are moving um, compared to West Africa where there were high numbers of Nigerian nationals and uh, Gambian nationals, Guinean nationals, for example, in the irregular flows. And so there was a lot more to understand about why people were moving and the extent to which those movements may be based on uh, misinterpreted or inaccurate information. And that was really the basis of the campaign. What did that research piece actually try and do? Did it try and just form a bit of an evidence base about why people move? Yeah, yeah, fair question. Um, I think when it comes to designing uh, communications-based initiatives, what's really important is the granularity of decision-making. So often we have this debate about migration decision-making that happens at the macro level and is led by economists. Uh, and so everyone uh, involved in migration studies would have seen that uh, bell curve graph, which shows that uh, migration goes up as development goes up and then it goes down after a certain threshold is met. While that may be true, uh, as soon as we zoom in to populations within countries or within regions, we see that the dynamics become quite differentiated and quite specific. So whereas you may have one thing going on on a national level, uh, you have uh, something completely different going on in a particular origin town or region in, in Nigeria or in Gambia, for example. 
And so the objective of the research was to understand what those dynamics were at a very local level. Um, and then the secondary objective was um, how, how were migrants or potential migrants, once they decided they would like to leave their home countries, how were they planning that journey? Where was the information coming from? And to what extent were they uh, perhaps misled by certain aspects of that information? Um, and, you know, I want to stop this from sounding like uh, it's just about understanding whether migrants were aware, are aware of risks. Um, it's a bit more than that. It's about understanding relative to the perceived rewards, um, are the risks worth it for, for potential migrants? And it's looking at that decision-making process as a whole and the psychological process going on in individuals' minds and the conversations going on with households to see whether there's, uh, there was a fair weighing up of these risks or whether an, an intervention would help people make more informed decisions that ultimately resulted in better outcomes as defined by them. That's, that, that's all very fascinating. And I was wondering, what were the big insights that or the findings that surprised you and that might surprise people listening to this? Yeah, I think there was an assumption um, and there has been an assumption for years in, in the migration communication space that social media is taking off in many origin countries and therefore it must be highly relevant uh, to design communications campaigns which are based on the internet and social media. But of course, however far social media has taken off, that doesn't mean that people are relying on open social media pages, for example, to contact smugglers or to make decisions. I think one of the key findings of the research was, and it won't surprise anyone who's ever made a big decision in their lives, but potential migrants, when making this colossal decision uh, to, to leave their home countries and attempt to reach Europe, were relying on conversations with trusted family members, uh, whether in their origin country or within Europe, trying to get recommendations for smugglers who had a demonstrated, um, demonstrated success previously with other migrants. And a lot of these social media pages which um, European authorities have been going after uh, were, a bit, were red herrings to some extent because that wasn't fundamentally uh, what was driving uh, decisions. And it wasn't fundamentally the place where smugglers were deceiving um, the potential migrants that we were talking about. Of course, in that part of the world, personal networks are just so, so important. And yeah. so essentially the notion is that when, when a migrant makes that decision, they will weigh up the, the potential benefits, the opportunities and the potential risks. And I guess the notion is that perhaps until now or, or in general, migrants have had and perhaps not always appropriately evaluated though that balance between the the opportunities and risks they might not understand fully what opportunities they'll be able to get if they do reach their destination and they may misjudge the risk as well and i certainly know from my time living in the sahel region and traveling a lot there that a lot of people do think a lot of people do think it's the el dorado and I personally think that part of that comes from the, the su success bias that they're exposed to. So those who do make it, when they call back home and tell people what it's like, they don't convey the difficulties, the challenges that they go through. And therefore that perpetuates this Eldorado notion because they don't want to disappoint their families and friends. Oftentimes their families may have contributed a large sum of money to get them up there 
So I was just wondering how they can be better informed because I feel as well, there have been a lot of awareness raising programs where let's say European donors fund campaigns to show that there are risks of people dying in the Mediterranean. My instinct is that those are not so successful in general terms, because oftentimes the migrants still believe that they will successfully make the journey and also that their situation is different in some way or that it's worth that effort. So I was wondering if what your reaction is or what your views are on on those campaigns. Yeah, absolutely. I think when it comes to effective communications campaigns, what there are two really important um, components which we often miss in, in our sector when we're, when we're looking at migration. Um, one is uh, target audience and really narrowing down who we're talking about. Um, so when you're, when you're talking about uh, people who may already be aware of the risks, not benefiting from a risk awareness raising campaign, I think you're completely right. But we shouldn't make the jump then to saying that everyone thinking about making the journey to Europe is aware of the risks. Um, we need to separate those populations. And sometimes um, that means separating, segmenting audiences, even within a country or a community. Um, and then I think the, the second point to, to what you're saying uh, is that there's a difference between um, raising awareness of something, passing knowledge, which you can do through unilateral channels, you can do through television, you can do through leaflets. There's a difference between that and working with someone in a more bilateral sense and trying to construct an alternative idea of what their future may be. And this is the level of sophistication you need, I think, to help people to internalize the risks and understand whether those risks are really relevant to them. Is it likely that it will happen to them? And is, is this likelihood enough to change the way they think about the potential rewards of uh, life in Europe? Or is it not enough that they want to migrate anyway, despite knowing that? And even that's a success for me because at least they're making an informed decision um, and they won't end up deeply regretting the psychological and physical harm that they may come to and the financial losses they may sustain um, through the journey. So those are, those are the two real, real key points for me, the target audience and uh, the holistic approach to communication. And in practical terms, how do you encourage that sort of more deep and meaningful internalization that you just described? Uh, it's, it's a difficult question. And I think uh, it requires deep cultural knowledge um, as, well as, as well as the research that we were just talking about. Um, the campaigns I've worked on, which have been most successful as far as uh, the evaluations are concerned and as far as uh, my own anecdotal experience is concerned, um, tend to rely on a one-on-one -on -one discussion method. Uh, so if we, if we go back to this idea that a lot of potential migrants are consulting trusted friends and family about their decision, then really your task is uh, to augment or replace the trusted friend or family member with someone else who is just as trusted, but perhaps better informed about um, the realities of the journey and the challenges with integrating in Europe. Um, and ideally better informed about uh, alternative options to pursue, uh, whether those are regular migration channels or, um, or other local employment opportunities, for example. Uh, when you've got this trusted person in place, um, 
then you can really start making headway with, uh, with uh, the potential migrant, usually the young man who is uh, thinking that um, this journey is the next best step for him. And you almost end up with a coaching or mentorship role. Um, and that beyond migration can have huge benefits in, in, some, parts of, in some parts of the world where uh, that kind of support is not available. Um, so that's, that's the kind of approach I'd support. But of course, you've got a problem there with expense. It's very expensive to uh, put this kind of support in place. Um, and it's very difficult to measure its success. Oh, yeah, that's true. And well, so in practical terms, does that look like, for instance, engaging influential members of the community, faith-based leaders, community leaders, traditional leaders, perhaps returned migrants, those who have made the journey and have a better sense of what the reality is? Yeah, I'll be annoying again and, and, uh, and say it depends. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, of course, uh, the religious leader in one community uh, may be hugely influential over, over young men thinking about migration. But in another community, the young men uh, completely dismiss him and actually look up to Celebrity X. Uh, in, what, in another community, uh, the person thinking about migration may confide in his or her parents. And in another community, they may keep it from then they keep the plan from their parents completely um, and confide only in members of the diaspora abroad. So uh, again, that, annoy that annoying researcher thing of you need to do the research first, um, but absolutely the, the principle stands. Uh, you need respect. So identifying, I guess, who the, who the right... Exactly, the right influencers or the right trusted people, yeah. Uh, and then you're ahead of the game in, in putting in place those, those trusted people that can... Uh, help people in their decision making. Fascinating. And I think that also leads us on to a question that we touched on earlier, but I think is worth addressing head on because these sorts of, well, the, the EU trust fund in general, the whole approach of addressing the root causes of migration lends itself to criticism. And also, I think when you talk about these sorts of behavioral based interventions. I put it to you, I mean, in some ways it sounds like using psychological kung fu to stop <laughs> migrants coming to Europe. So what are, you, what are your views on that? Yeah, I think, you know, in my, in my last few years of doing this, I, I've had this conversation several times because frankly it's uncomfortable. Um, because you're right, it, it is about influencing people and using your understanding of them. Uh, so a lot does come down to what are your intentions? And of course, it's a murky space where some people's intentions are less wholesome um, than other actors' intentions. Um, so I think we need the tools as a community of migration scholars uh, to interrogate these campaigns from an, from an ethical perspective. Uh, but I would also say we should hold our judgment of them. They're not a monolith. Uh, we do have the campaigns which are very much about trying to dissuade people from migrating and uh, have less integrity in the way that they do that. Um, but we also have campaigns which um, really are seeking to help people make decisions that lead to better outcomes for themselves. And if we're really honest about the data, if we're really honest about the outcomes that a lot of irregular migrants have, for example, in Europe, they're not good. And a lot of people do regret making that journey. So if we can at least differentiate between those for whom leaving their country is absolutely the best thing they can do and not standing in the way of that. 
and those other those other communities or individuals for whom that's actually a really bad idea, um, then I think we're on our way to a nuanced understanding of what's ethical in this space and what's not. At the moment, though, I think that uh, levels of understanding of, of how these how these programs work is not high enough to have that have that debate. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting perspective and and nuanced perspective. One thing I like about you, Paul, is that you you're very good at conveying that nuance, uh, which is which often doesn't come out in debates on migration. But uh, I was wondering as well. I mean, I I do see that point of view as in the sense that, especially from my experience talking with people, my friends back in Burkina Faso where I lived, there is just this very unrealistic or very very biased viewpoint that in Europe everything is great and where they are, they don't have access to livelihood opportunities, which, which of course is is true as well. But there is just this notion that if they manage to get to Europe, then everything will be great. So, certainly, yeah. if there's a way to give people all sides of the reality, then that's surely got to be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you know, it's something that I think the left is as guilty of as the right in uh, in struggling to see the individuals. Um, below the flows, right? the, the people with very, very different ideas of what will happen once they're in Europe. Yeah. And, uh, and if we're going to avoid a paternalistic approach to this, we have to really listen to, to what those perspectives are, just as you're describing with the individuals you knew in Burkina Faso. Absolutely. And I understand you've also worked on designing research for irregular migration information awareness campaigns in Afghanistan and the Horn of Africa. What, are those are those sort of similar campaigns to the ones we've just discussed in West Africa, or or how how do they differ? I'd say for the most part, yes, they're similar. Um, they they differ to some extent in whether there's a a modern slavery human trafficking bent or um, an irregular migration um, basis motivating the campaign. But ultimately, it is about understanding the. The psychological as well as the practical processes that lead people into making decisions that might make them vulnerable um, in, in some way, in some shape or form. Okay, and were any of the findings from the research that you've done different in the sense of the, the psychology behind the decision to migrate or indeed the interventions required to, as we've just described, to give people the full picture? Yeah, I, I'd say there were certainly some differences and they come down to sometimes um, how irregular migration is viewed in the origin country. Um, in Afghanistan, I'd say one of the key things about irregular migration uh, is that it translates into illegal migration in Dari version. So in public conversation, in many parts of Afghanistan, though not all, um, it is understood as an illegal and uh, wrong thing to do. So that means that it's often quite difficult to have open conversations uh, about irregular migration. And so a lot of the planning and discussion about impending journeys, for example, happens very, very privately. Um, and this anyway in a culture that is very, very strongly steeped in personal relationships. So there, I'd say more than anywhere I've worked, um, these individual conversations over time, building relationships between uh, the, the team members there and the individuals thinking about migrating regularly were very, very important. Um, whereas in some other places, like Nigeria, for example, um, 
very open. Um, there is no shame in, in migrating regularly. In fact, it's celebrated. It's, it's something you do to better yourself. Um, and so talking openly about it is not taboo um, at all. So that's one, one really clear contrast that I can see. And how, and does, that, of, yeah, how does that interesting cultural and linguistic difference or particularity then translate into how you adapt your strategic communications? Well, one, one very tangible example is the migrant project um, in Nigeria would conduct a lot of public events. Um, and a lot of these public events involved very lively debates um, between people who were who considering making the journey. Um, lots of uh, open discussion on radio and lots of uh, group discussions, for example. Whereas that's much harder to do in Afghanistan. Um, not mm -hmm. impossible. And events are good for making people aware that you know, a campaign or a project exists, um, but the meaningful exchanges are much less, less likely to happen there, much more likely to happen in private spaces. That's, that's very insightful. Thanks. Thanks for that. And another question I think a lot of people ask is, how do you actually evaluate the impact of these programs? And, the, and this goes for, I guess, a lot of what the, what the EU is funding through the Trust Fund. You know, if the notion is that that they are funding interventions to address the root causes of migration, then how can you evaluate the success of those? How can you evaluate the extent to which those interventions actually stop people from migrating? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll start with that because the place where the EU and often Euro other European donors tie themselves up in knots is at the theory of change stage. What is the point in the migration campaign? Often you've got this implicit idea from the donor um, that the purpose of the campaign is to reduce irregular migration. But often they're too uncomfortable to make it explicit. And then the implementing partner, which is often an NGO, sometimes a humanitarian or development-oriented um, NGO, uh, is even less keen to make this campaign about um, stemming irregular migration. And so along the way, uh, you have an increasingly murky set of objectives for the campaign, um, which makes it very, very hard to define um, outcomes that are meaningful. So I'll start there. I mean, like really, what are you trying to achieve with the campaign? If you've pinned that down, you've already got further than most, I think. Um, and, then, and then if you're deciding that your campaign is about keeping people safer, then you can start to uh, design uh, evaluations that revisit people that you've worked with and see um, the extent to which your intervention may have contributed towards a different kind of thinking about irregular migration, if not different behavior vis-a-vis -vis irregular migration. Um, and the same if, you're, if you've got an explicit objective to reduce irregular migration from a certain community, um, which frankly I think is quite rare um, because of the ethical questions. Um, but then again, I think the most effective means are looking at longitudinal designs, going back to communities and seeing to what extent has this uh, campaign perhaps contributed towards uh, differing attitudes or, or departures from the community.
Okay. And do you have a sense at all about the extent to which these interventions have had that impact? So I, I, I wouldn't have stuck with it for so many years if I didn't think that there was a positive um, impact from the interventions. And I would say that in some communities, there's very clearly uh, increased reluctance to migrate quite so hastily. It's a quite a messy way to put it. But I think the best outcome that I've seen in the migration campaigns is people telling us at evaluation that I've decided to delay my migration, at least. And if we think about it, no one, no one can ever really be said to have decided not to migrate ever. So if we look at people who have said, I'm going to delay my migration, that can mean that they now have time to gather more information about the journey, even if they do leave eventually. Or perhaps they'll save more money so they can pay for uh, a more reliable smuggler that might protect them from these lists of kidnap and ransom that we know are very prevalent along the routes. Uh, it might mean that they depart home during a summer instead of a winter, and so decrease their chances of being stuck in a very, very dangerous Iranian-Turkish mountain pass, for example. Um, so those are the ones I really take encouragement from, people who are at least putting more thought into the journey, um, and so uh, hopefully better prepared uh, for, for what may lay ahead. Um, and then, of course, great if, if someone as well has said that I no longer want to migrate because I'm really excited about something else. Um, I think that's a really good outcome because ultimately, however much you want to accept um, people fleeing persecution, if they don't have to, that's a great thing. Yeah, very well said. I also wanted to touch on another piece of research you did to see how strategic communications applies to a different context. And I understand a few years back, you led a research study into strategic communications and modern slavery in Nigeria. So how did strategic communications apply to the modern slavery context? Yeah, that was, that was a 2016 project, um, which came under the UK Modern Slavery Fund. Uh, you may remember Theresa May was uh, seeking penance, I think, for, for some of her other policies uh, by pushing modern slavery programming around the world. Um, but it's a really interesting one because, again, uh, just like we discussed, uh, understanding uh, the nuances behind what makes, in this case, usually um, young women and teenage girls vulnerable to traffickers, um, understanding exactly what makes them vulnerable um, can lead you down the path of interventions that are a lot more effective than simply raising awareness that trafficking is dangerous. Um, so, I mean, some of the key findings there, for example, were uh, there was a pattern emerging in the data that often after family breakdown, so the death of a parent or the departure of a parent, um, girls or women were taking up these dubious job offers from, from men, usually, uh, but also women who were promising them that things would be better if they left Nigeria with them. Um, and so there, you can really start to pinpoint which populations might be vulnerable. Um, so rather than Nigerians, we're talking about girls and women in Edo State who are particularly vulnerable to ending up being trafficked to Libya, or we're talking about um, girls and sometimes boys in Lagos who, who are particularly vulnerable to ending up in domestic servitude in London and Manchester. Um, 
and then with that segmented audience and then really understanding the antecedents to then being recruited by traffickers, um, the point of intervention can become much more effective. And there was some delay between the research and the program there, but the, but the program eventually was implemented. Um, uh, and that was uh, to touch on a point from earlier as well, uh, very much a classroom-based intervention uh, where, where schools um, were leading uh, we're leading this uh, communications-based um, project. That's fascinating. Also, I think a lot of, at least clients that I've worked with in the past, when we look at the prevention element of trafficking in persons or modern slavery, often there's a desire to implement some sort of awareness-raising component. Mm. So I guess where what we're, what we're talking about now comes in and what your work has been focused on is about working out how you actually raise awareness in the most effective way. Yeah, yeah. And really, fair to say. Yeah, that's really fair. And understanding how, if it is risks that are the most effective aspect to communicate, understanding how risks are, um, are approached from your target audience. I mean, a really good example from that trafficking communications research was a lot of the women and girls, for example, were saying, we know that there will be extended abuse um, that I'm going to suffer in Libya or Italy. But at the end of that, I'm going to come out financially successful. Um, so there, your job is not to tell them that there's a risk that you might be assaulted or raped en route, they already know. Um, but it's trying to work with them so they understand that you may be you may suffer for years and years and at the end nothing will come of it uh, and that's the norm the norm is not that you become financially stable and return to nigeria successful as you've seen others do uh, the norm is actually that uh, nothing comes of it and it's really damaging in the long term and in addition to that i think an insight that at least i've personally gained from from talking to you is that it's not just the message that's important but who delivers that message Mm, right when yeah, really back to, yeah the the community leaders or whoever is influential in the eyes of that that target audience seems to be pretty key as well yeah absolutely that's really important okay well thank you so much for your time today paul i think this has been a really insightful podcast episode and i think it really gives food for thought to a lot of people listening, a lot of organizations, especially those who are raising awareness of migration and the, the various risks and opportunities inherent in migration. So my last question is, how can listeners learn more about your work and get in touch with you? There, there's a Twitter handle. It's not very active, but you're, you're very <laughs> welcome to, to follow that. LinkedIn is probably the most effective way. So find me on LinkedIn, connect. I'm always happy to have a chat. Lots of people have helped me that way. So I'm only too happy to pay forward any information or tips I can, I can pay forward. Fantastic. Well, we'll put a link, a link to that in the show notes, but Great. thank you once again, best of luck to West Ham for the upcoming season. <laughs> I think I'll need it. As always. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, thank you very much for your time. And uh, we look forward to seeing your upcoming work. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Migration and Diaspora podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can check out the podcast website, at loxanharley.com forward slash podcast. There you can subscribe to the mailing list or get in touch if you want to be on the podcast. 
Be sure to follow the podcast via your favorite podcasting platform and leave a review if you can. Thanks again and see you next time.